Hiya. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. This week, we were joined by Mike Fell. He's a researcher at UCL. He also has a side project called Pump Chic. It's a heat pump experience facility. We, we explain it. It makes more sense. He's also the guy who runs the Instagram account, which has the, the glamour photography of heat pumps, which, I mean, I'm sure I've mentioned all of it before. The reason why we've got Mike on is because he recently co-authored a paper that was published about realist approaches to research. He's an energy researcher at the moment, but this paper sounds quite academic. Really, it's practical. This is why we wanted to to bring it to people's attention. Realist approaches are doing the research, making the effort to understand why things happened and why things didn't happen. It's not just looking to confirm your biases or your expectations, and it's an amazing system for overcoming things like survivorship bias. But we cover a whole bunch of stuff. It's a lot of energy-related chat, thinking about how you manage your own use of energy, embodied carbon, the value of research, blah, 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 all the usual things. But he's got an interesting flex on it all. All the articles are in the show notes, and it's a full house this week with me, Dan, Jeff, and Alex. Yeah, I'll just let you get into it. Oh, um, there's a bit of mic trouble at the beginning. I think it's resolved quite quickly, but there might be a little bit of background noise at points. I couldn't hear it prominently in the edit, but I don't know what headphones you lot are using. All right, hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Right, have you met Jeff, Mike? I don't think we have met, but uh, you can correct me if I'm No, no, I mean, I've heard of you. Um, I, I can't place you. We haven't met so far, so far as I'm aware either. So if we have met, at least neither of us of us is aware. So we're, you know, which augurs well for this chat, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike, your mic is weird. It's only picking you up like two words in. Um, one, two, one, two, one. Is that? Um, I mean, it is a headphone mic that I'm using. I can always take that out and do the uh, just the inbuilt laptop. One, two, testing, one, two. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that's better. I guess that'll pick up more background sound should there be any. But um, if you're happy with that. Yeah, yeah, we're grand. Okay, no problem. Right, Belton, I think, and you've met Alex before, ages ago now, I think. Oh, yeah. Some time ago. Right, yeah. That's right, yeah, we did meet a long time. Yeah, it was quite a while ago now, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, a long time ago. I mean, I can't remember how we encountered you in the first place. I think it was through my colleague, Taj Areshin. I'm pretty sure that he put me in touch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when we were researching the LEBD stuff, and he said you were doing some interesting stuff. Yeah, I think and, I did. And you are. and you being here today so um yeah we've asked you to join us today to talk about a couple of things realist approaches in energy research to support faster and fairer climate action that's a a paper that you co-authored and published with nature is it nature energy yeah that's it um, with uh, a couple of other authors lucy middlemiss and uh, katie rolich yeah and that's a really interesting piece of work which we'll get to in a moment. And you, you're you also doing some other really interesting stuff. You have a, a, another project called Heat Pump Chic, which I, I'm enormously enthusiastic about for its really useful practical application. And uh, it's a reverency as well, which I think this space needs an awful lot more of. Which shall we start with? In fact, shall we start with how I structured it to begin with? This realist approach is to energy research, I think, is a a really fascinating subject because having read through the paper, it echoes closely what we do. Um, yeah, you're quite right, Alex. It's just messaged me to say, we probably need to introduce you first. Yeah, exactly, Dan. <laughs> stop it, okay? Just, yeah. just stop. <laughs> Mike, Mike, who are you? Who am I? Well, my name is Mike Fell. I'm a researcher at University College London. And uh, most of my work there has been looking at demand side flexibility, which basically means households and businesses' ability to change when they use electricity and how much. And they might, you know, need that might be helpful for things like making use of solar or wind power when it's available. Um, and I'm a social researcher, so I'm mainly looking at things to do with people and uh, their interactions with technology and so on. And that's manifested in a bunch of interesting ways already. Like your your bread guide or your guide to when you should should I bake? 
Should I vape? Yeah. Yep, that's it. Yeah, I was, uh, um, I've for quite a while done uh, baking. And I guess it was one of the most kind of electricity intensive things I did with using the oven for quite a while. And I was always like, you know, I could, should I bake today right now? Or should I wait until tomorrow? Because as you know, you know, there's quite a lot of difference in terms of how much renewable generation there is on the grid from from day to day. So yeah, we, we with a couple of colleagues, um, Andy Brace and Ed Sharp, um, developed this uh, site for bakers, basically, where you could look it up and think, is it a good time to bake right now? Is there above average renewables? And if not, when might be a good time to bake in the future? Um, and we've got a Twitter account or an X account called The Baking Forecast now where you can uh, follow that if you're a baker. And a lot of people actually use that for non-baking reasons as well. They they just kind of use it for keeping track of when to do other kind of high intensity things. There's some nice kind of um, symmetry or symbiosis in that which you go back to um, to, you know, old kind of windmills kind of hiring I, I don't know grinding of grain or whatever you know that kind of stuff so it's um yeah it's kind of an extension of that in some ways you know some, something romantic about it mike well that that's it yeah we kind of refer to it you know most people know kind of what goes into the bed the bread that they're baking but what about the uh, what's going into the electricity that you're using to bake it with you know it's that kind of hidden ingredient you need to do some social research to understand do people feel more like uh fresh bread on windy days windy wet days you know when the cold is in your bones yeah i can imagine actually yeah i think probably in the winter at least um <laughs> i think uh, you know in this normally pretty pretty uh, pretty good levels of wind then so yeah there's probably more of a relationship between the inclination to want to bake in uh as it relates to wind power than uh than solar uh, output you know? yeah <laughs> And of sense of virtuousness that can come with it beyond like the the virtue of nurturing your own sourdough entity. Oh, I'm I'm also doing good, not just making tasty hard work bread. Yeah, well, as you know, you know now there's you know quite frequently periods when you get paid to use electricity if you're on the right tariff. Doing baking bread to do that is a good way. Uh, you think um or or far away from the big bread companies, the Hovises and so on, uh, offering a green loaf. A windy loaf. I guess it's interesting to think in future about, I mean, there are these schemes out there which are being developed, which allow big electricity users to, you know, really footprint down to the very precise time slot and location of where the generator was and what it was generating to allow you to say, making this product actually used, you know, this amount of um, carbon, this, yeah, there's quite sort of big you know, schemes being an energy tag, I think, is the one I'm aware of at the moment, which is trying to do that. But you wanted some dodgy carbon uh, uh, offset sort of scheme whereby um, the uh, and Dan and Alex, please, no reference to specific companies in this, uh, whereby you have um, two products that you market simultaneously, one for your kind of uh, metropolises for the for the greener kind of more climate aware uh, consumer. And then the dirty loaf for the Faragistas and so on uh, in, in Middle England, you know, let them have their dirty loaves, you know, well, forcing it, actual carbon over it in some way if you can, yeah. It does. So to your point, Jeff, like that does have fairly serious implications for tracking embodied carbon, like in product development. That's worth thinking about. Or did you say energy tag, Mike? Uh, yeah, I think it's a little while since I've engaged with it. I think that's the, uh, the name of the, the scheme. We'll have to have a look into that. That's a really interesting, maybe not interesting for the this episode of the podcast, but I think in terms of the embodied carbon chat, Jeff, that's a way for people to set them, themselves apart from the pack. If you can not just look into the, the composition of your products, the transport, if you can look into the electricity that is affecting every step in the process. Well, it's an interesting one because you know the way I'm kind of quite often kind of go on about um about the massive variance in embodied carbon of PV modules. Um, yeah, yeah. Subject you've looked at, Mike. Um, when you look into the the environmental product declarations of PV, now that we've got product characteristic rules as sort of a standardized way of of comparing one PV modules uh, embodied carbon data to another, and you see these enormous differences. I mean, uh, I was talking to Kit Knowles actually about the subsequent to um, from Yuka Sarek, another former guest on the podcast, who um, has done some more digging. But last time I checked, um, uh, there was one module that was literally a quarter of the embodied carbon of of the most polluting module in the market. Now, maybe uh, Kit was seem to be suggesting that there have been further 
substantial improvements with one module since then. But the point is, I mean, I raised this with Ireland's kind of the grandfather of PV in Ireland, a guy called Tim Cooper, who's independent, not tied to any particular brands. And he raised the point because the, the best one that I was aware of, uh, the, the wafer and the ingot was made in Norway using hydro. And Tim was sort of a view, well, are they just purchasing credits for, for hydro and, uh, allowing other people to purchase the credits for the, for brown electricity? Uh, so is it really greener? I mean, this has always been the discussion about these, you know, the kind of the green tariffs, which, you know, you've been able to get, which, which, you know, let retail customers, households know that they're using 100% green energy and it's, and it's done through, you know, buying and trading certificates. Um, and that can be actually quite dangerous if people think that they're getting 100% green, clean electricity. They think, might think, well, I don't need to reduce the amount I use because it's 100% green anyway. It doesn't matter. Whereas actually all it's, all that's happening is just a certain number of, you know, credits are being bought from, you know, it might even be another country. So that's part of the rationale for these more specific, um, you know, uh, certificates or whatever tied to certain generators and certain time periods for certain generations so that you can make a much clearer path uh, to the electricity that, it, that was actually consumed or avoided. Yeah. And if the kids have to have like, you know, uh, uh, sort of raw dough and cheese or ham in between, isn't there more raw dough? Well, so be it, you know. I, I like to share lots of recipes for, you know, no baked cheesecakes and so on. So that, you know, well, at least I used to, I don't know whether people seem to pick those up, the bakers, but you know, there's a whole bunch of, yeah, that, I think part of my interest in like the bake, you, you mentioned the baking project and that is it connects to, it's not like technical information. It's like there are this many kilowatt hours of now and it's going to cost you this amount. It relates to a, a practice, an activity that is part of, you know, many people's daily lives something that's enjoyable. And it brings us back, you know, there's always that example of people always used to know how from the size of the wood pile, as it kind of diminished outside the house or the amount of coal in the cellar, you know, how much energy, the characteristic, there was a much more direct relationship with, with energy. And what you mentioned, the windmill, you know, the windmill, when you could do your activities was much more driven by the condition, you know, the weather conditions in that case. And we're kind of going back into a sense of that. And it's how can you bring those things, which are going to be more a characteristic of a net zero future alive in a real a more real sense for for people um so that you can people can do the things they need and want to do but in a way which is more sort of informed by and responsive and doesn't feel super constrained by the kind of uh, you know natural you know conditions of the weather and so on but maybe more enabled by i you know it's a that's it is, this is the area i'm actually pretty interested in really there is a very clear need to find ways to help us adapt our behaviours that have been inculcated into us in this period of an abundance of energy. You know, the Industrial Revolution, imperialism, they were all fueled literally by fossil fuels. You know, once, once we improved the, the nature of the ships we were using, we could get all over the world, we could extract resources from all over and fuel the Industrial Revolution quicker and quicker and quicker. And that was when fossil fuels were at their cheapest, within reason, and now they are less and less cheap. And that sort of progress, in inverted commas, is no longer possible. And the only really viable progress is a, a manner of reduction, which causes us, like the, the example of the windmill, Jeff, is something I think we should we should think about more because it is really significant i mean that is how it works where we've talked about so when we we had uh dave pearson on the other week or months ago now we did talk about that i can't remember if you made it yeah, yeah 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 where we talked about you've got a, you know a guy who optimized a building within temple bar in dublin to purchase its energy when the winds were howling throughout ireland so it was an almost negative cost to him to to take this energy on board. That's Tim and Cooper he, again. Yep, same guy. Oh right. TV. Yeah, we have to have him on. Yep. Yeah, like you know, through through that sort of Windy Miller approach, like he managed to reduce the energy cost of his building down to sweet FA. Yeah, and that sounds much more like progress than digging up a load more shit and burning it nowadays. I think that like I I definitely agree with all that, and that, that sort of relates into the stuff I was saying. And I would also say often at the moment, that sort of 
thing is aimed at this kind of idea of like resource man, some normally a man who is looking to kind of track and follow lots of kind of data streams and will, will kind of, whether it's their business or their house, will kind of tech it up with lots of kind of smart tech so that it can respond and make the best use of it. And, you know, and that's all great. We need people to be innovating in those ways. But lots of people aren't so interested in those things. They're kind of turned on by other ways of being engaged or they just don't have the time to think about those things. So there's going to be a whole... so. Yeah, we need to do that. We need to make sure that we can use the abundance of renewable generation when it's available. We need to be able to store it as far as possible, as far as, you know, resources and economics kind of allow. Um, and we need to be able to, you know, use less when there's not that abundance. But getting to that point, the way in which that ha- that works will be, I think, different for for different people. And actually, I, without meaning to, this kind of brings us to this point about the kind of the realist, uh, the realist approaches. Um, which was the paper that uh, that, that you, meant, you know, that we discussed before? I, I can say a bit about now and how that relates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think it's really yeah, interesting. Stop down from talking, please. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> I think that this paper is really interesting, and the reason why I wanted to have you on was because, like, it is a, a very academic paper, which puts forward this this case for using realist approaches because they are things that work, and try to understand why they work rather than just quantifying stuff and then making drawing conclusions from it. What and is it a realist gives... approach then? What does that mean? So these realist approaches, which um, there's a couple of different ways that I'll talk about, really the main question underlying underlying them, if you're taking a realist approach, is you're interested in how in understanding how when you do an intervention, you do something to try and change something, not just does it work, because the chances are, it's not going to be as simple as that. You're also interested in what works for whom, in what circumstances, and how does it work. So you're kind of drawing a distinction between, you know, what are called like positivist approaches where you can, you know, you might be doing a standard experiment and saying, okay, we're going to not change anything in this in this case, and then we're going to, that's going to be the control group. And then we're going to change one very controlled thing in this other example and find out if something works. And then we might say, yes, we changed that thing. We had that expected outcome. Great, we should do that thing. And I think most people, you know, would would realize that that's a very um, kind of basic way of looking at things, and would actually realize that, especially you know, thinking about energy and thinking about energy demand, you know, home energy demand, which you're building energy demand, which you all work in. There's so much that differs from kind of from building to building, from occupants to occupants, and the kind of purposes for which buildings are used. You know, a simple measure like, I don't know, include in installing a smart thermostat that might go in and work really well for a household who's happy just to kind of sit back and let, you know, who didn't previously set their thermostat. Um, now it learns their kind of uh, occupancy patterns and it can help not turn on the energy, you know, the, the heating too early and it can turn it off at the right time and save energy for them. Whereas that exact same intervention intervention into another household that was previously, you know, maybe in fuel poverty that was really kind of monitoring their electricity use might suddenly make it much harder for them to do that because they might turn it down and suddenly it's turned itself up again, you know, without them wanting without them wanting to do it. And you could have this unintended consequences. So you've got the same intervention, the same sort of mechanism, but in one context, it's working, the context where, you know, the household wasn't doing anything before. And in another context, it's not only not working, it's having unintended. I mean, this is just an, a kind of an illustrative example. And it's common sense, really. You know, it's nothing kind of groundbreaking. But it, I think there's something about the way that often research is done that, you know, sometimes it tries to kind of avoid and get around that messiness and come up with these kind of one size fits all answers. Um, that can be just how things are done or kind of alluring. And this re- and these realist approaches, it developed, you know, really, I mean, it's got a, a, a kind of a history, but really in the last 20 years or so, 25 years, that it's been developed in and, and, and used a lot in areas like health and crime and the sort of social programs. But in energy, even despite knowing that especially energy demand has got these really kind of rich differences in terms of the context you're working, it hasn't really been that much, that much used. And that was the aim in writing the paper, just to really say, here's something that seems really appropriate to be used, is used widely in other areas has got quite limited use here we should do it more it reminds me of something uh the journalist and uh and medical doctor ben goldacre 
uh, talked about it. I think a nerd stock uh, talk he gave where he um, he had this academic piece of research where he had he he had some students um, monitoring newspaper headlines from mainly the red tops, I think, in the UK and uh, tabloids, um, and um, uh, looking specifically for stories uh, related to cancer, I think it was, and a range of different um, uh, substances, you know, drinks and foods and so on. And um, and basically, uh, one of the, <clears throat> the slides that he showed was the different foods and drinks that were associated with uh, with curing cancer, according to, to you know, this is uh, tabloidification of, of an academic paper, which is disastrous, you know, as well. Um, and I have to say the university press uh, kind of PR teams as well sometimes have a have a a lot to answer for in this regard um, in their simplification of things. And then chocolate, coffee, red wine, and so on were all listed as kind of potentially curing cancer. And then the next slide was was the substances which are associated with causing cancer. And it was exactly the same substances, you know, along with them. Um, so uh, you take something out of context, uh, you misrepresent the findings potentially, and you can end up with a very simple story um, and an awful lot of confused people. You know? Yeah, com- completely. I mean, I think food you know, is a similar kind of area to, to energy. We know that there's so many factors that affect both, you know, the characteristics of food, but then the interaction of the, the food that people eat, their diet and other aspects of their environment and their activities and so on. It's anything, any area like this that's that's complex, that's not just a really simple kind of, you do this simple thing and it has this simple predictable outcome. That's very rare in, in, social, con- in, in social context. Normally things are complex. There's all sorts of different things interacting. And that's why I find these kind of realist approaches where just a really kind of graspable way to try and make some sense out of these complex situations and try and focus your mind on what's actually happening. I think I think also I would add to that is there's the the issue of bias as well. I mean, you you do a lot of, of research, so you're like us. You understand obviously the importance of challenging your own biases. But uh, we're on a then and I won a, a podcast a few months ago, and an example that was given is the reason why we have uh, so many delivery um, uh, sort of you know like delivery type sort of things is the is because of all the the young white guys uh, coding in Silicon Valley and who just need food quickly at their desk, and that's why they're developing all these solutions. You know, so they all think that that's the right solution to everything. Thing. And it doesn't matter if it's in energy, in food, or anything else. We all assume that we know or think we know what we need, and you just end up trying to come up with solutions, as you say, that are appropriate to maybe a few people, but not necessarily to everyone. So it's really important to have that realistic, realist approach. No, I completely, completely agree. I mean, that's one of the points we make in the paper, like being aware of you know how interventions might impact different groups of people differently and that's mm-hmm. so what you're getting out there but i think also, also what you're getting at another point we try and bring out in the paper as well is that by using this kind of mindset it makes it well easier but also necessary to draw on a wider range of different research i mean it's acknowledged that you know we need insights from a much broader range of people and different kinds of research you know ones that are not only giving kind of headline overviews of quantitative work but real detail like qualitative work that understands people's experiences different people you know, involves a wide range of people and under because part of this realist thing is understanding why something works and that's kind of hard to do unless you're getting in on the ground and looking at evidence that's directly trying to understand from people whether whether something has worked for them or not and if so why for people to understand in this that uh that um uh because it's easy when you get into this kind of nuance for people to just throw their hands up in the air and say, well, what's the point? You know, I mean, there's, you know, there's something which might, I thought that worked, but actually it doesn't, it has these unintended consequences. And because people tend to simplify and look for simple answers, but actually one thing is that it's just about trying to engage with people and, uh, and, and show them that lots of the things that they can do, for instance, to, to reduce, uh, their impacts on the environment can empower them and can improve their life. Um, and there are some solutions. I mean, one of the reasons we took the magazine in the direction of Passive House, and not that it's a magic bullet, because it's not many years ago, is because the evidence shows that in terms at least of the specific silo of space heating um, and, and thermal comfort and so on, taking account of the fact that some people might want really high temperatures for instance or or really cold temperatures so there's those kind of variables to think about too it tends to work uh you know really really quite well so not that there's not issues with it but you know there are certain things we can do which uh, which can also i think build in some resilience for us so that if we are in a situation where we have to kind of pick and choose when we do certain activities we 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 are we're narrowing that down and and, and giving ourselves uh the capacity through 
you know, for instance, a building that doesn't need much in the way of heating, as a way of example, um, you're enabling that kind of flexibility without so, without too much suffering. You know. Yeah. Um, to that, I've been talking about like complexity and how we've got these really difficult, complex situations like build, building um, energy demand. But also, we recognise is we've got to find. You know, you've got to get to the point where you've got usable answers. So it's partly about recognising. Okay, what is going to be a mechanism, something that works in actually a relatively broad array of contexts or ones that are quite common. You know, there might be, we're recognizing that it's important that these contextual factors exist, but actually they're quite common. And if we can recognize them, then that would be a good mechanism for us to use. Now, you know, Passive House in many ways, I'm sure is a good example of that, although there will be, you know, other issues that mean it's going to be hard to to achieve in many circumstances. Yeah. Passive House is a good example because like in terms of systems design, because it's one of the premier building standards which uses building physics to fulfill its to fulfill the mission like it's mad complex but the outcomes like are simplified uh to like a bunch of metrics that you have to hit air tightness energy use temperature that sort of thing and this is what i really like about what you presented what realist approaches present they give you a framework to manage the chaos of research and actual life because like one of the real values of this and i just want to uh highlight the fact that this paper is well worth reading it's very academic and so for some readers it might feel like a slog but the information that's underlying it is really simple there are three factors that you you need to adhere to what are the three factors it's context mechanism and outcome you consider those three things you look at them from as many angles as you can and in doing so you get to uncover not just what happens but what didn't happen <laughs> which is alex to your point about overcoming biases like survivorship bias is as much a blight on research as uh, confirmation bias because if all you're looking at is the responses that you got you're not account for accounting for all the people who didn't respond or why they didn't respond or the people who weren't able to engage. So the people who were potentially excluded from a whole process, which I think is fascinating. Like this is a thing that all the people who are listening to us now can actually apply. You don't necessarily have to apply it with the same sort of rigor that you guys are, but in all the things that you do, because I mean, Alex will be able to confirm, like, I mean, this is what we do. We just didn't call it realist approaches. I completely agree. Yeah, like you say, it's um, a pretty kind of academic piece, but it really is common sense. And I mostly, I don't know if we really pick this up too much in the paper or not. I think at the end, maybe. But we say it's almost just something to kind of bring to your thinking in kind of any situation. And I quite often end up doing this, thinking, okay, this thing has happened. What was it that that led to this thing? And how was it that you know, that that mechanism, what was it about the context that meant that that happened in that situation and it and that it might not have in another? That's that's really the key the key thing. It's saying you can't it wasn't just this thing happened in a vacuum, independent from everything else. What was it about the interaction between that thing being done and the underlying circumstances that meant we got that that it ended up going in this direction instead of this direction? And it's all even just a, a check to bring to your own thinking, I think is really useful. I would say, by the way, um, for, for me, for my simple brain, I think for some of our listeners, where we can talk about these kinds of examples, these kinds of principles with real examples. Well, it, I was going to ask Mike, would you mind explaining, because you've written two really interesting articles that they're not as long as you suggested, Alex, like they're, they're very accessible, but there's, there's the one on Airbnb and the other one, which is a flexibility capital idea but i mean just uh, the airbnb one is particularly interesting because it's it's very accessible to your point jeff yeah i mean i can talk a little bit about that and that's in a sense that's using a slightly a, a, a sort of a for me highlights a different another benefit of this kind of realist approach so just a bit of background um one of the areas i've done some work in is this idea of peer-to-peer -peer energy trading so this is where let's say that you're a household with solar panels at the moment you you pretty much can just sell it sell the electricity you generate back to your energy energy supplier um and a peer-to-peer -peer energy trading you might be able to sell it to uh, some kind of local um 
sell it back to some kind of local market or maybe even a specific neighbor or a, a friend or something like that who you could identify and give them a good price. And, you know, this is potentially of interest because it can allow people to get, you know, a better price for the electricity they sell. You know, I might be able to sell it to a neighbor for better than I could sell it to the grid, but it would still be a cheaper price for the neighbor to buy from me than it would be for the grid. It all depends on the regulation and so on. This, this is an area that's been, there's been a lot of thought and discussion about it and quite a few trials, relatively small scale trials. This is good because, you know, it might help you to make better use of like local generation, for example. So it's a, there's various other benefits, but it's one of these areas that's of interest. But there's not much evidence on what the impacts of it are in real life. There's, like I say, just these trials that, that, that have been done. Whereas Airbnb, according to my thinking, was an example of a similar kind of process happening in accommodation where it had sort of moved from this idea that you would go to either, you know, hotels fairly anonymous, not like, not attached to a particular individual. And obviously the hotels don't really have any choice over who go, goes with them to a situation on Airbnb where, you know, you're selecting a very specific host and they're also choosing whether or not to accept trading with you. And there's been lots of research done on Airbnb. Um, many, many research studies. It's obviously a massive worldwide thing and it's got interesting um, aspects to it as well in terms of who benefits. So I thought, is there anything that we can learn from the research that's been done around Airbnb to let us anticipate some of the issues that might come up when we're thinking about peer-to-peer -peer energy trading? So for example, one of them, just to get down finally into the examples you're asking about, is in Airbnb, there's now quite good evidence for the potential for discrimination on things like um, ethnicity and uh, sex, for example, where there have been you know studies showing consistent differences from people, whether they're black or white, for example, in terms of how much they would expect to be able to get for their room or apartment that they're letting out. And the underlying sort of process for this is that so basically in a sense to frame this in, in the realist terms the mechanism that you're introducing through something like airbnb is a much higher level of choice over who exactly you transact with when you're or, and stay with when you're doing your accommodation and the context for that is one where we know that there are more greater or lesser prejudices that exist so people who you know for whatever reason conscious or unconscious are prejudiced to or you know in favor or against people of different ethnicities different genders or whatever so you've got this combination of the mechanism of increased choice under a context of existing prejudice and discrimination leading to this observed outcome of high, higher higher prices or more guests being turned down of a certain racial background for example okay now i'm going to kind of argue that we can observe this is the same we're talking about the same sort of societies the same sort of contextual factors when we're thinking about peer-to-peer -peer, this we know that these prejudices exist in society and if we do introduce these levels of individual choice which you know up to this point haven't been there at all in the in energy markets my argument is that it's reasonable to think that there's a risk that we could get these same sort of outcomes being introduced into energy markets that we haven't had up until this point if you've got relatively affluent people who've got solar panels choosing to sell the power to their friends and neighbors who are probably going to be more likely to be like them, maybe it's going to be less likely that you're going to have outgroups being able to access those cheaper prices which they're offering and so on. And then you start ending up with what might, what might otherwise be completely unexpected, unintended outcomes of this kind of trading, this kind of new trading arrangement. Now, I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen. I'm saying if we look at this evidence from another area, it's a risk and it's something that we should at least look out for. And we know from Airbnb that there are ways of managing it. You know, for example, give instant book options so that the hosts don't have a choice over who they accept. They just know who they've got, you know, things well, like that. We, You can see the, the connection between what you just described there and Alex's point about venture capital firms funding companies that will bring their lunch to their desks. Because they they are time poor individuals who they can't go out or won't go out or won't cook their own food, so they have to rely on it. And it's these sorts of biases that are baked into a system that lead to consistently negative outcomes for the same groups of people. And I think these these methods are worth considering because they help us recognise these structures. 
like that are already baked in. And it doesn't have to be a mechanism or this doesn't have to be a framework for uncovering uh, inequality. This can be used for companies looking at how they're minimizing their own market share by not looking to these additional areas, by marketing to the same people they've always marketed to through their their traditional methods. They're not realizing their full potential in terms of getting their product in front of a much broader range of the right people. Completely. It's- yeah. I mean, this the work I'm starting at the moment with this new um, Energy Demand Research Center, again, looking at flexibility, which I mentioned earlier in the introduction, this is about how can we widen out who can get involved in and benefit from providing flexibility. So taking it perhaps beyond traditional kind of more affluent homeowners who can afford home batteries and PV systems and so on. How can, how can we make it so that the broadest range of people can benefit? And that's got, that's of interest to me for different reasons. One is yes, the good, the moral kind of fairness reason everyone should have the opportunity to benefit, but also just some fairly pragmatic reasons. If we're going to have a largely renewables dominated system, we need as much flexibility as we can get. And we, you know, we don't want people who could under the right circumstances provide flexibility in a way that's accessible to, for them not doing so for some reason that we could have addressed. We don't want those people missing out. And we don't want people looking at this whole net zero project thinking, that's not for me, that's leaving me behind. Because we can see where that's going in terms of social buy-in to the whole net zero project. So there's a what you were saying there, you know, it's opening up markets, it's creating better, you know, opportunities for companies to sell products in these areas by being by being more inclusive and hopefully you know, it's important to support the whole enterprise of, of net zero. Yeah. I'm minded of, uh, I saw Nathan Gambling post last night. So shout out Nathan of uh, Beta Talk, heating podcast and an expert in his field. But he was posting about how consensus, in fact, I'll just read it. Uh, consensus suggests we're still at the innovator stage of, regarding the uptake of heat pumps and the adoption curve. We're still at the innovator stage due to the no, low number of installs compared to the number of homes. Who then are the early adopters and what is holding them back? And them being those early adopters and the, I mean, the rest of the market. Because, you know, you can see arguably the early adopters are people who are very aware of technology, e.g. people working in and around policy in this area, people working in ESG, sustainability, climate, etc. I meet quite a few of these people and it's always interesting to hear why they have not adopted such technology and are still sticking to gas. Maybe if we studied why the people getting paid to talk about the virtues of heat pumps and not having them installed themselves, yeah. we would then understand how better to reach the early majority. You're talking, to clarify, you're talking about the UK here, because lots of other countries are a lot further along the pathway with heat pumps. It's a mature technology um, and it's got significant uptake in many parts, many European markets. Um, yeah, 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 100%. But like uh, as a framework, the question Nathan's asking early evening last night, you can answer it using this framework. It's uh, perfect for it. Yeah, completely agree. And actually with your two two points, because obviously one thing that you don't want to be doing is forcing an untested technology out onto people thinking, oh, you should be benefiting from this technology. But actually something like heat pumps, you know, as you said, um, Jeff, really well established. We know it works. It's very, very efficient, has the potential to save people money under the right sort of electricity gas sort of pricing regime. So yeah, it's fair to say, okay, we're in early days. Who are the next tranche of people going to be to get them? But to also focus your mind on, and how can we make sure that that next group of people is like that? Everyone's got the opportunity to sort of benefit and to be in there, you know, whether it's by producing, coming up with different ways of financing so that if you're not able to fork out the large amount of money up front that's needed to get a heat pump, that you can still get in there and start getting the benefits through it being financed in some other way so that you're not ruled out of being one of those early early adopters if 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 you're keen to just because they haven't got the money and various other you know reasons we're looking at people who might want to benefit but they're tenants or leaseholders you know but again these might require different solutions around kind of leasehold regulations for example and you know permissions and so on but this again like you said Dan by using this kind of realist approach and thinking so one of the things I'm going to be looking at in bringing this to my thinking is what works in building the ability to be flexible and to benefit from it and to unlock that ability for whom, again, in what circumstances and how. So there'll be a whole range of different things that might work in 
unlocking that next tranche of heat pump adopters. And we're seeing lots of this stuff happen already, but I, I kind of want to understand it. I tell you what would be fascinating here from an Irish context. Another approach, which is very blunt, but effective, and at least in terms of getting uptake of these technologies, is just to make it the law. Um, so for instance, in terms of new homes, right? Um, so in Ireland now, over 80% of new homes have heat pumps because we have a mandatory renewable energy requirement and a mandatory, quite strict energy performance requirement for buildings. And heat pumps are a good way towards kind of eating into both those targets. Um, it's 86% last time I checked, if you count hot water heat pumps too, some apartments that are done with just direct electric heating for for space heating and then a hot water heat pump uh, to generate domestic hot water. So, of course, this is a different group of people who, in the vast majority of cases, have not chosen uh, to either have bought or or uh, or be renting a house or apartment with a heat pump, but they're in there. And uh, there's fascinating insights to be to be gained from understanding how well or not that has worked for them. You know, yeah, yeah. for sure. I think there's. I've often, you know, thought there's early adopters who have made a choice for themselves to adopt a technology like a heat pump, and a lot of people who have had that choice made for them, like by a social landlord, for example. It's the same sort of. Um, situation but um but yeah it's right what you say about yeah sometimes mandating things like condensing boilers for example i mean that had a um a big observable impact on um uk uh heating energy demand um that work in from colleagues in my department helped demonstrate actually and that was that was mandated and there are things relating to whether it's heat pumps in new builds or smart functionality of heat pumps so that they can be used flexibly which are all you know which is being discussed um which are all things that you you could just and probably should just be mandating now and i have one of my other hats mike apart from the magazine is that i chair the heat pump association of ireland and one of the most interesting examples that we're looking at most kind of challenging examples is uh the boiler replacement market um, in Ireland, depending on who you, um, who, you know, no one has definitive figures in this, but there's, depending on what assumptions you make, we're talking about probably in the region of 60 to 90,000 boilers a year that are, that are replaced by gas, a mix of gas and oil boilers. Um, and in that scenario, you know, where Mr. or Mrs. Smith or Murphy or whatever, where their, where their boiler is breaking down, um, and they need a heating system now. How do you design a system that's capable of enabling them to take a decision to put a heat pump in quickly, uh, even if it's cart before horse in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, you know, optimizing the building to make, to, to enable the heat pump to run at a, at a, at a, at a higher CLP, for instance, you know, um, how do you, how do you do that? Um, it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a fascinating. Go on, sorry. Yeah, Jeff, I, I think, I think what's interesting there is that if you look at a, a boiler, which is a very, very mature technology, uh, you've got a few rather simple choices. Do you want a small one or do you want a big one? And yes, it fits with all your current radiators. It's sometimes, and I'm oversimplifying, but it comes down to that. When you talk about heat pump, you've got questions about, well, you know, is the fabric of the building okay? Are the sizes of your radiators okay? Are you going to have to change the piping and all these other things? So I'm not surprised that the majority of people, even potential early adopters, are going to go, well, look, I'm not going to touch that with a barge pole because it's too complicated. I don't want to have to make those decisions. Like decision, having to make that choice, you're always going to refer to your safest option. It's the back to the choice thing. So I agree with you, Mike, and well, to everyone's point here is that actually the too much choice is a bad thing. We need to start saying this is just what's going to have to be put in and we move forward. If it is a really mature technology, which we know it is, it's been around for a very long time, then now is the time to say, okay, let's just go with it and stop giving people a choice. Yep. But in the context of the UK, we're deploying a little bit of magical thinking here because like the, the so to the point about chaos before, there is abject chaos. Can you hear that? Oh, my doorbell's just going off. I'll be back in just one second. Um, go on, sorry, Mikey. I don't know if you have anything to say on any of this. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would just say, I think what you were saying about that kind of distress purchase situation of a of a boiler that you were both kind of mentioning there is, yeah, something I think a lot of people are thinking about and whether it's possible to, I mean, I had something on my Pump Chic website that was like a boiler escape plan of kind of you know, like a last will and testament for your boiler that you could gradually kind of uh, move towards a situation where when it packed up, you were kind of ready and waiting um, to go over to a heat pump or something. But I was going to say there is also some kind of structural issues that make that hard. You were saying about, you know, getting, I mean, it's a good idea, you know, to get radiators upgraded and so on so that you could have a heat pump when when the time comes. But if you get your radiators as part of a heat pump insulation at the moment, you know, you can get them without that. Whereas if you get them separately, you have to pay that. So the, the sort of system isn't sort of 
I had to I had to paint my radiator this weekend, and that was a pain. So then you want me to go and change it as well, just because of the that. <laughs> no, sometimes it's funny, but it, it comes down to these really really simple things as to who we are and, and you know what our our life looks like at the moment and what our priorities are. And you know, I honestly I, I wish I'd known that there were heat pumps when I changed my my boiler. What? Four years ago, I think maybe five. I wish I did. I was looking for for solutions, but these things seem to be so nebulous, etc. And I think it's still the case. We have to make it simpler. We have to bring it back to the sort of boiler proposition. You want a small one, a medium one, or a large one, and it's just going to work. And you're right. It's going to have to be a bit more complex than that. We know that we're moving towards technologies that require a more of a engagement with the system. You can't just whack the heat on when you move into or when you get into the house and it's going to heat it to a nice toasty temperature and then the, the thermostat's going to do its thing. It has to be more of a managed solution. So there is a cultural thing as well here that we have to get people to realize that well, to be honest, that your as you said, your your thing about the rest in peace for, for boilers, I think that's a really good good thing. It's it's time to say, yeah, they're they're dead. They're they're still around, but actually they're they they're gone now. We should be forgetting about them and thinking about them in a sort of a, a fond way. Do you remember back in the day when we were just using these things that we could just heat up immediately? Do you remember when the pilot light used to go out? Eh? Do you remember that? Do you remember yeah. having to repressurize your boiler? Eh? Remember, do you we- remember the tick, 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 tick when it was trying to start? Yeah. Oh, oh, was great. oh <laughs> yeah. All this. All this youth in fields, jumpers for goalposts. Do you remember when you used to set things on fire in the place where you where you spend most of your time? Your love. <laughs> that was great. Love yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So to, to your point, and uh, apologies for that interruption there, or maybe not. Maybe uh, you. And we we heard you. Were yeah, you were making some noise. So the RIP to the boilers. I mean, boilers in the UK just came back from the dead with the the government. I don't know, so apologies if I'm repeating something there. But again, uh, I don't mind because <laughs> that is what I, I am often like. One of the benefits of this framework for research, and again, why I'm hoping to push it, is because it can help catalyze and accelerate decision-making. So we are in a situation where, so to Jeff's point, like we are well behind the rest of Europe in the UK, and we need to make progress. And we've got a government that is indecisive or decisive repeatedly <laughs> so they're they're going back and forth and not making not providing conditions to precipitate the sort of change that we actually need in those circumstances this sort of research framework can help businesses find the confidence to make decisions they can work out what works so to the the point about nathan's post which I'll include in the show notes because it's really interesting and there's a really interesting thread of comments associated with it. You can use this sort of framework to identify who the viable markets are and just start pushing it to them. You're absolutely right. If this was mandated by law, that would be great. But the law in the UK seems to be flexible and decisions seem to be utterly flexible. Once made, they can be unmade in a stroke, at a stroke. They're like overly confident, skittish apprentice candidates, you know. Um, Jesus, you're absolutely right. <laughs> That's that is it. Yeah, <laughs> I think, I think the problem we have also is that well, I was listening to a podcast or a sort of a history podcast about uh, the refrigeration technology, and back in the day when that came out, it was squashed for a very long time because the. Uh, ice barons didn't want to obviously lose their market because they were going and getting big chunks of ice and and shipping them around the country and the states. So they were saying that uh, this technology was ungodly and that you needed to have the good uh, godly ice to to refrigerate your food, etc. And I think we're going to have the the same problem as well there is that there's going to be a lot of people saying, no, 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 we've got too much money involved in this. Let's not let this happen. And I'll let you, Dan, exp- express yourself on all that those aspects. No, that's all right. Uh, Mike, and I, I would love to hear uh, your thoughts on the potential for accelerating decision-making in a direction that we need. Yeah, I mean, it was just going to observe, really, that what we're seeing is net zero, important policy for net zero being held back and delayed and put off course by this purported you know, concern about people being left behind. I mean, it's a valid concern. You know, we should all be concerned that these things benefit the population, you know, the population. But for me, I would turn it around and say, you know, okay, we need to find ways to, that, to do these things that we have to do in ways that will 
maximize um, the benefits across the population. You know, and obviously there are plenty of companies out there operating that, that realize that and are working on ways to do this. But we need, you know, the research to show where those approaches work or how they might, how things might be tweaked and improved to work for more people, how they might be evidence and so on. And that's, you know, the challenge I see to, well, to innovators, but also the research community to say, okay, this is what we need to do to to make these policies viable and to make them proof against the argument that um, they're not going to be benefiting uh, a wide range of the population and proof against those kinds of rollbacks like, like we've seen. I think you just need a bloody more, you know, boring, sober, uh, grown-up, long-term approach from from your uh, from your politicians as well. You need cross-party consensus on the direction of travel and on what the policy is going to be, not for the next, you know, six months or a year uh, or the next term of parliament, but for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and you need to, to, to get commitment on as much of the detail as possible because the whole, you know, you know, everyone involved, be it punters or be it uh, or, uh, industry, they need certainty as well. You know, um, you cannot plan and envision a, a proper future for this unless you have that kind of certainty. Businesses love it. Businesses need certainty, for God's sake, you know. You saw that with the rollback on it, the commitment to mandating that petrol cars would be not sold by, was it 2030, something like that? Like, we've got sober politicians in waiting, prime ministers in waiting, who, in terms of sticking to their decisions, their pledges, he hasn't got a great track record. Like, he's projecting, he's saying lots of change words without mandating, uh, without putting it down in policy. And even the things that they do have as codified policy, you can't rely on. We've got a Labour Party that appears to be being led by the Tory party somehow. And the Tory party is a basket case right now. Like it would be hard to disagree with that statement, particularly in light of things like HS2. Let's not get into that. Right. So uh, I want to talk about Pump Chic as well, Mike, at some point. Uh, and we're probably coming up on an hour now. Have you got any last thoughts before we we move on? Like, apart from imploring everyone to check the show notes, to read the paper, read the associated articles, and any other links that Mike Trucks has us in the meantime? I don't think so. I think we've covered it quite well. Excellent. All right. So one of the reasons we ended up speaking with you and why I've spoken to you regularly over the last couple of years is because of a, a side project you have called Pump Chic specifically with regard to making heat pumps more accessible, a qualitative experiential approach to getting people used to the idea of having a heat pump in their homes and making the subject a little bit more interesting and more soberly providing heat pump businesses with a platform that they can use to give potential consumers the experience of having a heat pump in their home which in light of the the cacophony of confusion and bad faith comment about heat pumps in the UK is really justified. I mean, do you want to tell us a bit about Pump Chic, where it came from, what you're doing, and who you're looking to work with on it? Yeah, sure. So I guess the idea started out kind of, I don't know if you remember, there was some uh, not very nice website called Hot or Not. Um, this was one of the first kind of viral websites, I think it was, where people would basically go on and rate people according to their looks as to whether they were hot or not. So I thought, and for some reason, I can't, I don't can't remember why. I was thinking about heat pumps. It's like, oh God, they're always so ugly. But I had a quick look. At, oh, I was looking around at some of the, you know, because you look at heat pumps outside the back of a, you know, warehouse. That's the sort of idea that most people are used to. And if you Google, that's what often comes up. But there are actually some quite nice, attractive models. And also, I was thinking people, you know, proud of their gardens. Even though your heat pump might not be working in the summer, you're sat having your barbecue looking at it. It should be important, but it kind of looks good. So the initial idea of the site was to allow people to go on and kind of rate heat pumps installations and whether they look good or not and how you might make them look good and so on. And, uh, you know, I think people thought it was kind of a bit funny, but it wasn't the sort of kind of website that you would go back and revisit, let's say. So, um, and I still do a bit of, I've got an Instagram, which, uh, which has got like nice heat pump installations on it because I think it's still an important question that people have got to be happy with the idea of putting one in their garden. This is not where people are putting like timber cases over the outdoor industry, I think, is it? 
Because that's um, I mean, there are there are examples of that. Obviously, you've got to be a bit careful there with the ventilation. Um, and yeah. people kind of uh, using decals and stuff like that. But even just nice, nicer design. Um, but there, well, are... there was one I remember uh, years ago. Uh, oh God, I think Alpha Inotech had one that looked kind of a lot like Alpha, uh, like a uh, Darth Vader's face <laughs> or mask, brother. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that one. Yeah, I've. I'm worryingly familiar with many models of heat pump now. <laughs> I returned from the installer show this year with uh, yeah, tens and tens of photos of different heat pump model. Anyway, that's my sad um, life. But uh, but to be honest, I so that was fine. But coming back to what we started with, I guess um, talking about the uh, when we were talking about the baking projects and this interest in new in more experiential ways of engaging with these kind of unfamiliar ideas of a net zero future. You know, heat pumps, like you were kind of alluding to earlier. Dan, only a tiny proportion of households in the UK have got have got a heat pump, and very few people have had the opportunity to see one in action, feel one in action. Maybe they'll have now, you know. Obviously, there's been more press coverage and so on. So I was thinking, what are ways that you can bring the idea of having a heat pump to life in a more experiential way for people? So I went through various different options, um, which I won't go into. But where the site is now is it's largely focused around this heat pump test drive. Um, so this is where people can use augmented reality on their phone to kind of see what a heat pump might look like in their space with kind of instructions for positioning and positioning of the internal elements, which are important as well. There's the sound. They can they can hear what a heat pump sounds like um, with a calibrated volume because there's lots of talk, obviously, about the you know, these kind of noise concerns and so on. But yeah, it's hard to imagine. So got a recording of that that you can set up and play. But then, uh, as you know, like a heat pump, it's a it's kind of a low temperature heating system. The water that goes around your radiators is generally lower, quite a lot lower than it would be for a for a gas boiler system. But you can, as is increasingly widely known, turn the flow temperature down on your boiler. Um, it makes it run more efficiently anyway, but it also gives you a better idea of what it might be like to have a heat pump. So all of these things, they're just different tools that people can use to kind of get a little bit more accustomed to the idea of having a heat pump. And in my mind, I see you know, installers or community energy organizations, for example, using this like on site to show people or using it as like something they can leave with people they're engaging with as like a further resource that they can get into. And like you said, Dan, it's trying to get it away from just being all about technical things or financial things, which are obviously important, but trying to make it more about how people live their lives and what it might be, what it might be like. So yeah, that's the that's the idea of the site. And yeah, I've, like I said, I've now got I'm working, I've got a page for the Heat Pump Federation for some community energy organizations, Green Heat Co-op, Loco Home Retrofit that they can use. Um, and also started working with manufacturers as well. Got one manufacturer on board, eBack. So I, you can actually see in augmented reality, you know, using your phone, the kind of 3D model that appears in in the space of their actual heat pump and with, along with details of that. And I'm trying to get other manufacturers on board and other people offering, other organizations offering heat pump deals and so on. I mean, you're looking for partners to help push this further as well and sponsors to help grow the project. This is the sort of set of tools that it's not just uh, an AR for that can be used on someone's phone. You like you actually have like a, a frame that you can uh, frame and heat pump skin that someone can put outside their home to see what it would look like. You've got sound files with instructions for how to play them. So they can be reassured that heat pumps aren't going to be this this noisy backdrop to the rest of their lives. You've thought of everything that would be involved in the heat pump experience just as a means of reassuring people in this, this bloody awful, what feels like dis or misinformation. I don't know which feels most appropriate, particularly in the UK. Like you just mentioned local home retrofit. Like Alex and I had a chat with Tom Knuckles, shout out Tom. Uh, there the other week, last week, in fact. And something that he referenced, which I thought was really interesting, was he's a little bit concerned about heat pumps finding themselves wrapped up in the, the culture war raging through the UK, which seems like a very viable prospect if you consider how ULES has become wrapped up in it. Hydrogen is another beachhead, but a bit more of a corporate one rather than a, a, a people-based one. And what you're doing here, like in its current manifestation, it's a little bit unwieldy because it requires too much investment from individuals, but with support from people who are also invested in the mission that you are, like it becomes really viable really quickly as a, a means of showing people like 
this will work for you. It will be excellent for you and you will have a better quality of life or no different quality of life. That's it. I mean, I think, you know, it's a set of tools that people can use either themselves directly as users or that, you know, organizations can use to help talk with and communicate with the people they're engaging with. And and a large part of it, you know, some of the feedback I've had from installers and so on is that it's about kind of like managing expectations makes it sound makes it sound like negative in some ways, but it allow, helps people go into the process of getting EPOM with their eyes open and a more in a more a more informed way, so that when you go through the process, you've got a better idea of what it's going to end up being like. And then when you know when you find yourself with this lower temperature heating system, which is still obviously completely capable of providing the temperatures that you that you, that you need, but which you know and without scalding you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, without scolding you, exactly. You know, it might just take different kind of being operated in a different way that people aren't surprised and disappointed by that. So, yeah, I, you know, I, all I want really is obviously the tools are out there and for, for them to be being used. So anyone who's interested in um, either using using the tools to help kind of push their own products or or their own services as a community energy organization or a, or a heating um, manufacturer or other organization, um, or anyone who's just interested in getting the word, well, not just the word, the experience of having a heat pump out there more broadly. Yeah, those are the people I'm looking to get on board to help kind of push it and 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 to give me their ideas as well, because, you know, I'm just always looking to, I just find, you know, for me, this is a side project. Obviously, it would be nice if it could become financially sort of sustainable. But, for, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is just a nice um, addition to the research, to something that's a bit more practical um, that people can use in their in their lives, you know. You yeah. know what? What's something that I, that I, I uh, have been thinking will be it could be complete nonsense now, and I should really be running by this by by some of the the members of the heat pump association, for instance. Um, but um, the outdoor unit for a heat pump, when you're making heat, you're generating, I suppose, uh, you're, because you're separating, you're sucking heat out of the air, you're expelling cool air down, and I wonder, in the context of domestic hot water production in the summer, at least. Um, could you, if the outdoor unit is sited in the right place, have a nice little side product, byproduct of uh, of free cooling <laughs> for your patio? <laughs> I think I've heard people saying that exactly. Uh, sitting with their deck chair with a book in front of it uh, to try and take advantage of the cold air. But I guess, unfortunately, you probably don't need that much hot water to be able to use it too much. But no, yeah, it's exactly. time when you when you uh, time your hot water production for for when you're having people over. You know, yeah. So you tag team having a shower or a bath. So you go for a bath, guests arrive, you nip upstairs, get your rubber duck out. Your your missus can enjoy the patio, a cooled patio with the guests. And then you come down, wrapped in a towel, drying off in the sun, and then she pops up. Well, it takes longer yeah, to generate the hot water. But yeah, you know, you're planning your, 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 uh, you're going to be stinky while your guests are there. And then you, you, know, you bathe when they're gone, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. I was thinking of combi boiler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> extreme cool. coordination extreme net zero coordination <laughs> all right then i think we've covered everything for now uh i mean there is lots more to talk about but looking at the time i suppose we've probably covered as much as we can hope to today well thanks very much for um having me on and having the opportunity to chat about all those things that i find interesting and it's been yeah really interesting to get your thoughts as well and uh reflections and questions and so on so yeah thanks very much Oh man, it's a pleasure. I mean, I'm really delighted. I'm, uh, I love PumpShake. That's the URL. PumpShake.com is it? That's right. Yeah. PumpShake.com. Check it and check the Instagram account. Uh, that's the the glamour photography of heat pumps that I often refer to. <laughs> like I talk about it quite frequently. It's not as grotesque as I make it sound. Oh, but, oh, uh, t-shirts as well. T-shirts. Yeah. 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 They're good. So your your background is a designer, isn't it? Um, I've done a bit of art and design in the past, but I used to work in publishing before I worked in research. And you've done, I mean, you've got a whole bunch of other things. You've got a bunch of art projects. If you do a bit of digging, you can find uh, Mike's Amazon-related music project. Yeah, I got a bunch of um, Amazon Mechanical Turk workers to sing different notes of the song Amazing Grace and put them all together. It's on my, if you, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I don't know. I've always got to have some random thing ongoing on the site, (laughs) but yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's a, a magnificent satire. The Mechanical Turk program, which was like a gig, uh, an Amazon platform gig economy thing, really, it's a bit too much, a bit, a bit too explicit 
in betraying the truth. Like, you know, the Mechanical Turk was the chess machine that that beat courtiers across Europe and was eventually revealed to not be a machine that could play chess, but a machine uh, like Elon Musk's robot the other year. It, it was a, a robot shape which had a little man inside playing chess. <laughs> Well, the thing about obviously, you know, the point about that mechanical Turk thing was that it could do though, you know, get people to do those laborious sort of tasks that, uh, you know, you would think uh, would be like a machine can do. But now with AI, uh, so one in research, mechanical Turk is quite often used to get people to like fill in surveys. And now there are AI offerings, which are kind of like consumer research panels. So you can like deploy your kind of user research and consumer research to an AI panel, um, <laughs> which will, is, which is kind of in, in theory responds in the way that a real panel would respond and give you the input you need, which uh, I find really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. More uh, home delivery services, please. Oh, it's absurd, especially given that AI tends to be powered by folk in the Philippines or Kenya. Anyway. Right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Mike. We'll include everything, all the things that we've referenced here. Uh, that we have links for, we'll include them in the show notes. Have you got anything happening that you would like to plug? Um, I don't think so at the moment, but all of those things would be great. <laughs> cool. And all right then. Well, last thing is join ACAN, join the AECB, join the IGBC, depending where you are. If you're in North America, check Passive House Accelerator. What else? Her own space for all the uh, women listening. Check that. If you're interested in retrofit and renovation, Please review the podcast, five stars. Nothing else will do for the algorithm. It's not because we are vain and needy, really, although we might be. If you could share the podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. If you get something out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please share it with them. And as people increasingly are, feel free to get in touch with us to talk about the consultancy we offer. So we've had quite a few inquiries come through over the last couple of weeks, even if it's just a phone call or a Zoom call to help you put you on the right track. We are interested in, we're interested in the cause, not just making money. Although we definitely do want to make money. You've got to eat. Jeff, Alex, anything else to add? No, no. I'd be glad to see the back of you for another week, Dan. Cool. <laughs> Chance of a fine thing, Jeff. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Sometimes we second thoughts about this consultancy. It's terrible idea. <laughs> well, I mean, I've got to see you in what another forty minutes. Oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> cool. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Mike. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, really, really enjoyed having you on. And uh, the yeah. best with that, with that, uh, that pump sheet project and everything else. It's it's a fascinating perspective. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for having me. Cool. All right, and everyone out there, cheers for joining us. Bye.